With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom by simply visiting www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate to make a difference today. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh, we're in for a treat. You can't imagine a country like New Zealand further away from the Middle East, about as far away as you could possibly get. And this was this was recognized right back, back, back in the day. And very few Jewish people here and scattered through New Zealand. But here's something I didn't know. That in 1927, when my dad was just one years old, Dr. Alexander Goldstein came to New Zealand and did a lecture tour. And he was one of the leading Zionists of the era. And he came to New Zealand and he gave talks about the Zionist Palestine projects and the ideas which inspired them. And these meetings attracted much publicity and their message was received favorably by audiences around the country and by the Prime Minister, Gordon Coates. Now listen to this. I didn't know this, and I doubt you did too either. Upon his return to England, Goldstein commented, quote, If I were asked which was the best Jewish community in the world from the Zionist point of view, I would say New Zealand. He later added, If there is a role of honour in the world for communities, the first place in that role of honour belongs to Auckland. Now, just to show you that I'm capable of reading, that's the opening first page of the introduction of a PhD thesis completed at the University of Auckland by Dr. Cherie Trotter, who is our guest. Good morning, Dr. Trotter. Yeah, good morning. Nice to sit, nice to be here. Well, I never thought that I'd be spending a happy time earlier this morning reading a PhD thesis, but it's a remarkable history. It is. It is remarkable. And I, and I guess it's remarkable because it's kind of a forgotten story. It's what I know little about, and I'm not even sure if the Jewish community um, yet knows, apart from the more senior members, uh, mm. know that part of our history. So, yes. PhD's a big deal. You obviously put a life on hold, dove into it, it consumes you. What motivated you for this topic? Well, I, I guess that's been quite a long journey uh, for my husband and myself. Uh, we are Christians, and so, of course, uh, the land of Israel is the birthplace of Christianity. It's the place where, you know, Jesus was born the prophets, the apostles, the Bible all came from that place. So I would say that's the starting point. Um, but from there, we bega began to learn, research, uh, get to know the land, the people. We got involved in a number of projects. One of them was interviewing Holocaust survivors. And we had the opportunity to interview survivors while we were in Israel. And uh, we um, interviewed and photographed them. My husband, Perry, is a photographer. And we came home and Perry created these little exhibitions around the stories, very short three-minute stories, thinking we really need to reach a new generation, you know, and educate them about the Holocaust. And then over the years, we've interviewed about 
70 survivors. Uh, and so as I, I also um, got very involved with uh, kind of advocacy for Israel because having had the experience of meeting lots of Israelis, going to the land, seeing, seeing the land, seeing the people, beginning to understand the politics, I could see that there was a real problem. Uh, this is even back in the early um, 2010s, 2013-14 where, you know, there was a Gaza war back in 2014. And I can see that uh, what we were getting uh, in our news and our media was very um, one-sided, biased, and, and lacking a whole other side of the story. It hasn't changed, by the way. And so I just became more and more involved. And I had the opportunity after finishing raising my four children, I actually homeschooled them, four children here. Oh, good for you. My goodness. <laughs> So I had the opportunity to um, kind of do some, go back to university, pick up my studies, do postgraduate studies. I did an honours degree. I did a PhD. I was actually wanting to do something around um, Israel and the Israel-Palestinian conflict, but it was quite hard to find somebody who was able to um, supervise that topic. So I found a topic that fitted within New Zealand history and it focused on the New Zealand community in New Zealand, um, mostly the Jewish community, but also um, the non-Jewish community around this idea of Zionism. And uh, the topic was suggested to me by one of the, um, I would call, matriarchs of the community who said to me, it would be interesting to find out why the early rabbis were so Zionist. And uh, so the early rabbis um, were Rabbi Goldstein, Rabbi Astar, and between them, they kind of presided over the Jewish community in Auckland for about 80 years. The first rabbi, Rabbi Goldstein, was the rabbi for 50 years, from about 1880 to 1934, I think it was, and then Rabbi Goldstein from then until the 1970s. And so with these two rabbis being very... My goodness, that's a long innings, isn't it? It's a long innings and um, created a lot of continuity as well. And with both of those rabbis being strongly Zionistic, it had quite an influence on the community. Now, just hold that. Zionism. Zion is a mountain. What mountain is it? Is it Mount Zion? Well, yes, it's a mountain, and it's used interchangeably in the Bible as a reference to um, Israel, to Jerusalem, but it is a place in Jerusalem, a mountain in Jerusalem. And so, we know we know which one it is. Like, we know where Zion yeah. is, or is it something lost in antiquity? No, I think, well, I have to come back to you on that one. I okay. need to double-check. I need to double-check that one. And to be a Zionist is to be what? Well, Zionism is the movement to, well, back back before there was a state of Israel, it was a movement to re-establish um, a Jewish homeland in their ancestral land. I mean, there are different ways of phrasing it. It's about the self-determination of the Jewish people in their homeland. So that's what it was. And prior to 1948, it was the movement towards. And since then, it's really the movement to um, just support that. And of course, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot strong anti-Zionist movement. And so uh, sadly, the Zionist movement still has relevance in the sense that uh, people still, people will want to deny uh, the legitimacy of the state of Israel, and so Zionism is still 
uh, an issue today. Let me give you my thumbnail understanding of this and see if I've got it right. Jewish people lived in the area we now know as Israel for thousands of years, pre-biblical. Uh, three, four thousand years they have lived there and have been identified there. The place itself has been colonized, I guess the word is, by everyone. The Greeks, the Ottomans, um, the Babylonians. And through this process, the Jewish people have been, is it because of this process that they scattered through the world? What what caused the Jewish people to spread out across Poland, Russia, Western Europe? What what caused that great scattering? Well, it was really after the Romans came and um, colonised and took over and, and dispersed them, uh, kicked them out in 135 AD, thereabouts, uh, that the main uh, dispersion... Wow, way back then. Hmm. Yeah, but but as you say, well, I don't I don't know if you did say, but um, there was always a pres- Jewish presence in the land, you yes. know, throughout that whole period. So yes. not all of them were dispersed, but a great majority were. But there were previous dispersions as well in the ba- in the ba- Babylonian um, mm-hmm. colonization. There were Jews that were scattered in that period as well. And as they moved around the world, the Jewish people maintained their community, maintained their faith, and maintained the pull back to their home. Yes, that's right. I mean, they're called, you know, the oldest um, Indigenous community, and uh, it's quite remarkable uh, the way they were able to maintain their peoplehood, as it were, through their religious practices. But it's all embedded in their religious practices, you know, praying three times a day facing Jerusalem and Mm. Jerusalem being embedded in all of their festivals, like in, you know, Passover or Pesach festival, uh, they end with next year in Jerusalem. So there is always that aspiration of returning back to the land. Mm. And, of course, the concept of a state is a relatively modern concept. So there has never been, as I understand it, a state of Palestine. There's been a place, Palestine, the Romans named it, and then the British named it. But there hasn't been a a, a state of Palestine, and nor had there been a state of Israel. I guess there'd been a community of of Israel, I'm guessing. Correct me if I wander off in my own imaginings. But there was this desire that Jewish people wanted a place where they would feel safe because right through their history, they have been discriminated against and killed murdered, destroyed, and they had nowhere to go to. So you can understand it, right? They were never properly accepted in places where they had lived for hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm. 
So that's where this idea, I guess, and I noticed that the modern era of it, reading your thesis, started in the 1890s, this idea that there should be a state, a Jewish state, based in, the, in I guess, around Jerusalem, started in the 1890s, became a movement around the world. The British took over the area after World War I, having the Ottoman Empire being torn to bits and the Middle East being reshaped. And they administered what was then called Palestine. And then after the horror of the Holocaust, the Jewish state was born in 1948. And the Jewish people finally, after a couple of thousand years, had a place to go to. Is yeah. that, is well, that the thumbnail history of it? I'll just unpack that a little bit or unpick it a little bit. So prior to 1948, the Jewish people have twice had sovereignty in the land. So under the period of King David, uh, I guess he was a constitutional monarch, um, and then there was a period around the Hasmonean period uh, where they had sovereignty for a short time. So the Jews are the only people who've had sovereignty over that land. You're correct, there's never been a, um, a, a, a state or of Palestine or any such thing. So, yes, you're correct that it was the Romans who renamed that area um, Palestina, and it was really a slap in the face to the Jews, you know, after, nine, nine, um, sorry, 135 AD, the Romans came in and kicked them out, and then they renamed that place in order to obliterate uh, the Jewish identity and connection. So they named it after one of the ancient enemies of, of the um, Jewish people. Oh, really? Mm. I had not appreciated that. Yeah, the, the, the Philistines. And the interesting thing is that Philistine is in Arabic. They don't even have that letter F, Philistine, apparently. I don't know Arabic myself, but I've, I've read that. Um, so this land, it, it as you say, it had many conquerors over the centuries. Uh, and then from 1517, it was under the Ottoman Empire for 400 years. But if you fast forward to the 19th century, that area called Palestine was really a wasteland. It had um, no kind of geographic borders, as it were. It was an administrative district of um, Syria. Uh, it was an abandoned land. It had been you know, abused and misused for centuries by various conquerors who had come and gone, had a very small but varied population. Uh, so... That's that's what Palestine was in the 19th century. Now, and there were Jewish people living there continuously all through this time? Yes, that's right. And they were mostly centred in the um, very sacred places in Judaism, so Jerusalem and Safed and Hebron and those sorts of places. Mm. Um, and so in the, in the 19th century, there was a phase in the 1830s when Egypt actually got control of Palestine, and under their control, they opened it up 
for foreigners to be able to come into the land. And so you, you began to see in the 19th century a lot of people coming, a lot of Europeans coming, um, like the French and the Germans and the Russians coming to establish churches, churches sorry, and missions. And you also saw a flourishing of um, exploration, archaeological exploration in the land, um, this uh, Palestine Exploration Fund, which was, of course, came from Britain. Britain was the great imperial nation of the 19th century, as it were. And um, so they had very interested in Palestine because it was the Holy Land and it was the birth of Christianity, and Britain was very much, uh, you know, a Christian nation in that period. So there was a lot of that in, uh, interest there. But with the Russian, uh, sorry, the um, Jewish movement back to the land, so a lot of that came from the persecution they were experiencing in Russia and Eastern Europe, um, particularly in the 1880s, there was a, you know, a, um, suppression of, of the Jews by the Tsars and a lot of Jews left in that period, about 3 million left and many went to the United States of America um, but some of them went back to Israel, Palestine at that stage and um, began to try and establish communities. It was very difficult, um, swamp-ridden land, it was back-breaking, uh, they weren't used to the conditions Many of those early communities failed, um, but that was the beginning in the 1880s. So there was this movement back to the land prior to Theodore Herzl and his Jewish state. So Theodore Herzl's story is a little bit different to that Russian story because Theodore was part of that the Enlightenment. You know, he came out of the secular Enlightenment. He, he was secular. He wasn't religious. Uh, he became very disillusioned with the anti-Semitism that he saw first in Austria, where he was, um, where he came from, and then in France, where he witnessed the trial of Dreyfus, which um, he was a Jewish. Oh, that was terrible, wasn't it? Yes. Faced a lot of anti-Semitism, and I think for him that was kind of like this wake-up call that because um, Theodore had these different ideas of how how you could combat anti-Semitism. At one stage, he thought that they should all convert to Christianity. But, you know, his his ideas were developing. And so eventually he came up with this manifesto uh, called the Jewish State. Uh, I think it was called the Jewish State, something like that. Anyway, it was his manifesto and um, laid out his program. And so he started to have these uh, Jewish congresses where he invited Jewish people from all around the world to come and work towards this. Now, there wasn't, I mean, there was a diversity of views and opinions, and Zionism itself was very diverse. So you had secular, you had religious people, you had different ideas of how to do things, you had practical Zionists, and you had um, political Zionists, and you had revisionists. There were a whole lot of different kinds of um, emphases within the Zionist movement, and there, it wasn't actually um, set in concrete that it would be a return to Israel. Um, at one stage in 1903, they considered an offer from Britain to go to Uganda. Of course, that was thrown out the um, out the door by the Russians, who were more religious, and for them it was Zion or nothing. So mm. you know their their ancestral homeland, the place of their kind of religious um, connection. 
Uh, and so um, the, uh, Herzl actually died after that conference. I think it took a huge toll on him. There were also other um, kind of suggestions. At one stage, there was a suggestion of land in Australia for a, for a Jewish homeland. And another aspect was that they didn't know what it was going to look like. They knew they wanted a homeland within that land, which was their ancestral homeland, but they didn't necessarily, as the mandate started post-World War I, they didn't necessarily know that it was going to be a state. Um, they, there was one suggestion that it could be part of the British Commonwealth, for example. So it was a, it was a very varied and dynamic movement, and it wasn't just one thing. And I guess this is the way it is with all history, actually. Most history is far more complicated and complex than the sort of narratives we hear. And the narrative we currently hear is um, so simplistic, it's ridiculous. Um, so, yeah, those are some of the, that's a little bit of the background. And there was this, end of World War One. there was a thing called the Balfour Declaration. What was that? The Balfour Declaration in 1917 was a letter from um, Balfour, minister in the British government, to Walter Rothschild, who was a representative of the Jewish community in England. And it merely was a, it was a letter to say that the British government supported a Jewish homeland in, um, in Palestine. Uh, and there were other provisions like the fact that the peoples of the land, their rights would not be affected so it was a letter uh, to the Jews, but, you know, the British also gave a letter to the Arabs, and so there were these conflict, conflict mm. promises mm. that British made to different parties. And post-World War II, what happened? How did, how did the State of Israel come to be? Well, I think it's probably important to just talk about the British mandate period. So um, the British were given the mandate well, at the end of World War One, the Ottoman Empire was divided up between, mostly between the British and French, who were given caretakership over the different areas. Um, so the original British mandate actually included Jordan, and very early on, Jordan was divided up to be a state with the Arabs. So if you think about it, they were Palestinian Arabs who were given Jordan, and some mm -hmm. people argue, well. That was that was what was provided for the Arabs, the Palestinian yep. Arabs, was Jordan. Uh, but so anyway, there was a small piece left, and I don't know how many listeners realise how small Israel is. It probably fits into Northland of New Zealand down to maybe um, uh, Arewa. You know, it's a very yes. small country that we're talking about. Uh, so the British were given mandate, and it was their job, it was a caretakership, um, and it was to be temporary until the peoples of the land could sort themselves out to govern themselves. And the British found themselves between these two competing nationalities, the, the Jews and the Arabs. When I say nationalities, you had the Zionist movement, which was a nationalist movement and which had started in the 19th century and so it had developed, it had grown a bit of organisation and um, they were very committed to their goal and quite organised. They weren't actually well-funded. Um, there was a lot of requests from the rest of, you know, the Jewish people in the world to help support this project. 
Um, the Arabs, on the other hand, it was the beginning of Arab nationalism and and uh, the whole Palestinian identity didn't really develop strongly till the 1960s. So during that mandate period, the British had the job of caretaker, caretakership until the peoples could govern themselves. The British soon realised that this wasn't going to work because there was a lot of resistance from the Arabs uh, towards having any kind of Jewish homeland state or whatever. There was a massacre in Hebron, which was one of the holiest sites for Judaism where they'd lived for centuries. And there was a massacre on the Jews in Hebron, 1929. Um, so by 1937, the British had come up with a plan, which was basically a two-state solution. It was the idea, it was called the Peel Commission that went in and decided that they couldn't live together. They needed to have a state for the Arabs and one for the Jews. And um, now over this period, of course, we get into World War II during this period and Nazi Germany, persecution of Jews, Jews trying to get out of Germany and many wanting to come to immigrate to Israel. At the same time, British immigration policies became increasingly more difficult, harsher towards the Jews, and fewer and fewer Jews were allowed to immigrate to then Palestine. And so that was a really difficult time for the Jewish people. So, so you might be a Jewish person for seeing what was happening in Poland, France, Germany. You want to go to what was then called Palestine, and the British could say no. Yeah, they had quotas of a certain number of people that could come in. Oh, my goodness. Be restricted, yeah. Mm, okay, carry on. And, um, and so... As you know, as the mandate period continued, it was really difficult. The the British, it, the for the Jewish people, it seemed that the British were being quite obstructionist towards them, and I'm sure the Arabs weren't happy with them either. So by 1947, the British had had enough, and they just wanted to hightail it out of there. New Zealand actually um, opposed the way British Britain did that. Uh, because they felt that it was going to turn into a blood bloodbath and that they were um, not fulfilling their responsibilities. But the UN kicked in 1947 in November. The UN came up with this partition plan, uh, a state for the Jews, a state for the Arabs. So the Jews accepted it, even though it was much smaller than what they hoped for. The Arabs rejected it and began um, a war. So at this stage, it was like a civil war between the Jews and the Arabs within British Mandate Palestine. 1948, May, Britain leaves, the Jews um, announce their state, and then the five Arab armies come and attack the new state because they're not willing to accept a Jewish state in the region. So for the next, you know, couple of years, well, till end of 49, there was a war that went on and Israel ended up winning that war. Uh, and... Um, so, yeah, that's that's a brief overview of the mandate period. Um, the Palestinian people, just quickly, they are were living in what we now know as Israel. And many still do. So you have Palestinians having the full right of citizenship as in as, as Israelis. 
free speech, the right to vote, rule of law. John Minto did point out that they don't automatically get called up into military service, but they can apply and serve as soldiers in the IDF. They serve as judges. But many Palestinians, and this is the bit that becomes a contested bit of history, left, or, in John Minto's view, were rounded up and pushed into the Gaza Strip or onto the West Bank. What happened there? Who were these people? Well, who were the people? Uh, the Arabs. So, yeah, they were the Arabs who lived in Palestine. And this period uh, was quite dynamic in, in terms of the peoples who were coming and going and new immigrants. So, for example, a definition of a Palestinian refugee is somebody who lived in the land between 1946 and 1948. I think that's a reflection of the fact that there were a lot of new immigrants that came. So there were Arabs who might have been living in that land a long time or who might have come in from neighbouring countries like Jordan and Egypt and, and Lebanon into the land. But in 1948, they lived in the land. So the, at that point of time, they were living. And how did they end up? Not in Israel. Well, 1948, we had this war that broke out where the five Arab armies came and invaded. So if you read a historian like Benny Morris, um, he um, has written a good book on what happened. Of course, the Palestinians call this the Nakba, and they talk about being... Um, dispossessed of the land and kicked out and ethnic cleansing and all sorts of accusations. But in actual fact, 20% um, of the people chose to stay in the land. So, for example, we met Yosef Haddad earlier this year who came to New Zealand. He's an Israeli Arab. And he tells the story of how his grandfather, uh, who lived in Haifa, chose to stay. He had a business. He didn't want to go. So he stayed. So there were a number of reasons why they left. One was that the Arab higher command was urging people to leave, saying, get out, we'll kick the Jews into the sea and you can come back. So that was one of the reasons. There was a flight from some of the wealthy and middle class people because they didn't want to be in a war, so they left. And then there were some who were evacuated, I guess much like today, for military reasons, for military purposes, because they might have been in an area that had... Um, strategic military um, value. So there were a number of reasons why they left, but some chose to stay. And the 20% who stayed, they generally call themselves Israeli Arabs, but some in recent times have chosen to, to identify themselves as Palestinians. But I have seen that more and more are just wanting to clearly identify as Israeli Arabs. And people like Yosef, he's one of the strongest advocates for Israel today because he says that terrorists don't distinguish between Jews and Arabs. They kill, you know, their bombs will kill Jews and Arabs. And he talks about when the Intifada broke out, broke out and restaurants were blown up by suicide bombers. His parents and grandparents lived, he lived just down the road, and his family could have been killed by those suicide bombers. So he, he's very clear that the battle is against terrorism. What is an, the Intifada? Oh, Intifada is, is an uprising of violence. And so there have been a couple of Intifadas which have generally followed um, the peace process, actually. <laughs> so in 2000, there was a peace 
process, um, peace talks, where um, President Clinton was quite heavily involved in those and they made quite a generous offer. And there have been a number of peace land for peace offers given to the Palestinians and they keep rejecting them. And uh, so after that particular one, the second intifada broke out. They rejected the peace offer. Uh, the second intifada broke out. Now, this was where they were sending in suicide bombers and they'd go to bus stops and they'd go to restaurants and just kill people and kill the suicide bombers. He would die as well because, you know, he wanted to become a martyr or she wanted to become a martyr. It wasn't just men who were doing this. This is why the security wall was built and this is why security measures on the borders were um, uh, set up is to stop the um, suicide bombing. So, you know, one of the narratives you hear is about the apartheid wall. Well, the reason that wall was set up was to stop suicide bombing, and it worked. Um, you know, they don't have that problem anymore. They have other problems. Uh, but so these are some of the um, kind of the side of the story that doesn't get told, which gives mm. you a fuller mm. picture of what's actually going on there. And the Palestinian people moved to the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, which back in those days, 49, 50, were controlled by Egypt with the Gaza Strip. Mm, yeah, it was. And then, and then I guess the West Bank was controlled by, what, Jordan or Syria or Jordan? Yeah, till the six till the six day war. Yes, forty eight and sixty seven. Yes, so they had escaped out of what was called Israel. Then, when the Arabs attacked again, Israel took that country back, those those territories back for strategic reasons. Ended up with the Palestinian people. Um, had a vote pulled out in two thousand and five as part of quote the peace process. Pushed out all Jewish people, the Israeli government, out of the Gaza Strip and the West Bank to leave it to the Palestinian people. They elected Hamas, and this is where we are today. Mm -hmm. Now, Cherie, when you you set up with others, our lovely friend Alfred. I can never get his name right. Alfred Nara. Oh. No, no. <laughs> We've had him on. Oh, what a wonderful, loving man he is. Oh. You must enjoy his company enormously. I had him on the show when he was campaigning, and he was such a wonderful man. And you have set up the Indigenous Coalition for Israel, which when you set it up, you'd be thinking, oh, yes, this will be sort of an organization like Friends of Israel. But indigenous people, you would never have imagined, I suspect, or maybe because you're in the university, you saw this coming. A, that the next time there's this appalling attack on the Jewish people in Israel, that New Zealand political leaders and academics, and particularly Maori people who are in Parliament would stand up for the Palestinians and in this way of victim and oppressor identify themselves with the Palestinians and an extraordinary mental somersault see the 
Jewish people as colonizers. Did you foresee that sort of thinking erupting? Uh, I think I could say I did. Um, I first started thinking about this in, I think it was 2016 or 2017, when Marama Davidson went to Gaza as oh, an yes. to stand yes. with the um, you know, indigenous women of Gaza. And look, I have every sympathy for the people of Gaza, and I am pro-Palestinian in the sense that I care about what's best for the Palestinian people. But I don't think what the Palestinian movement is doing is good for the people. Um, so I think the the narrative, there's a number of problems with the Palestinian narrative. And it seems like we've taken our history in New Zealand and superimposed it on the Middle East. And there are just too many problems with that. For example, what you're dealing with there in Gaza is a radical Islamist group. It's a radical Islamist group that's connected to the Muslim Brotherhood that has the same ideology and aims as ISIS and, and the Taliban. And for some reason, because Israel is involved, we see it differently. But we know what their goals are because they state it clearly. It is the annihilation of Israel. And so if we're talking about colonization, who are the colonizers here? It is the radical Islamists who are the colonizers because even though they were given back Gaza in 2005, they don't want just Gaza. They want the whole of the area from the river to the sea without Jews, by the way. And what would they do to them? They'd commit another genocide, which is what they did on the 7th of October. And so, you know, what I see happening with this narrative, I find quite disturbing, actually, the way... Usually disturbing. Yeah, the way that um, Maori activists have embraced the Palestinian cause as our own, uh, and they don't seem to be acknowledging all of that other side of it. They, they're not really fully acknowledging the the atrocities that happened, the mass sadism that happened on the 7th of October. And I've stolen that phrase from Paul Moon because I thought he described that very well. I mean, I don't know how many people are aware of how horrendous it was, but it's beyond imagina uh, uh, beyond imagination what those terrorists did to innocent people on that day. And so, you know, any country that has less than an hour from their main city, a terrorist group who will come in and do the most horrendous things to your wife, to your mother, to your baby, to your grandmother, any civil country will do whatever they can to stop that ever happening again. And Hamas has promised they will do it again and again and again. And um, Israel has no reason not to believe them. And, and so, you know, these are some of the problems I see with the way this narrative is being pushed. It's, it's so different to our situation. Um, and it actually really um, kind of minimizes the suffering that Palestinian people, Palestinian women who have no rights, you know, it actually minimizes their suffering so much by trying to say that we in a democratic free nation like New Zealand, we have all of the rights in the world as Maori women, that we are somehow, you know, suffering the way these Palestinian women are suffering. suffering. Um, so I just see a whole lot of problems with that narrative. And, um, yeah, I could say more about that. that but that's It almost seems to me 
that we have become so stupid, and I include myself in this because we're all being dumbed down by our phones and tweets and Facebook and TikTok, and your level of concentration doesn't extend to a PhD thesis, you struggle to read a long tweet or Facebook post or finish a newspaper article. And it seems to me that your Chloe Swarbrook's and your Marima Davidson's and Debbie, no, I don't know who she is, the Maori Party lady, they seem to think, oh, the Palestinians are brown. A lot of Jews are white. America and the West are supporting Israel. Oh, I know whose side I'm on. Mm. It is almost that identity politics mm. void of any ethical analysis of the loss of life. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't go very deep, <laughs> that's for sure. But then there's this other, and I'm going to get, um, and I promise my listeners that you know where I stand on this, and I promise that, you know, recommend me people, we'll have people on to talk about this. But the Israeli army, the Israeli defense force, is going out of its way not to hurt Palestinian civilians. They're struggling to do that because it's quite hard to know who the terrorists are and who they aren't. And it's doubly hard because Hamas uses civilians as what's protection. They put themselves behind the children, behind the women, under the hospitals, in the schools, in the mosques, for goodness sake. And the Israelis, when a Palestinian civilian is killed, the Israelis grieve. It's not something they're aiming to achieve. But Hamas glories in even their own deaths because they know of its propaganda value. Mm -hmm. And not only that, we saw something I've never seen before. I'm sure it's happened in Uganda or maybe Kosovo or something, Bosnia. But the killing of Jewish women and children, babies, and in their own words, the perpetrators glorifying it. This is a tough situation for the whole world. Because what do we do? And I can't see how you can sit on the sidelines, Sheree. Yeah. Because this is, this attack is on every one of us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, Marima and um, Chloe and the Mary Party are justifying 
such violence, mm -hmm. targeting innocents against colonizers, identify Maori with Hamas, not Palestinian people, but Hamas, and you start to get a bit chill that me sitting here, little white boy in Otago, could be next. You know what I mean? Mm. Is that nasty and divisive, is it not? What what you're what you're standing up for isn't actually what's happening in the Middle East. It's what's happening amongst us now. And yeah. it's how we're treating Jewish people. Here. Mm. I mean, this is this is not something I would ever thought we would have to confront no. in this day and age. But you saw this coming when you saw I just thought Marama was misguided going on that boat and she was going to take food through to the poor people of Gaza and she was arrested by the Israelis. She has no clue, I thought to myself. Mm. But there's now a movement here in New Zealand behind her. Yeah. And What's, that movement has... Mm, sorry. No, you carry on. Yeah, that, that movement has a long papa in this country because it goes back to the period of the anti-apartheid movement and mm -hmm. those activists, and it's in the activist circles and academic circles. And I thought it was interesting that uh, Willie Jackson last week, I don't know if you heard his speech to do with um, Israel and Hamas, it was in a parliamentary speech, where he kind of claimed the Maori position as, you know, we, we are for the Palestinians. He quoted Fidel Castro. He quoted Yasser Arafat. And I found that interesting because there's been this alliance, a Soviet-Arab alliance, yes. which has been anti-Israel since the 60s, and they have pursued a very definite propaganda campaign, very active over all of these decades, active at the UN, uh, and active in those circles of activists, of activists and in academia. So that's one of the threads that I can see coming through that lies behind. So you get people like Madame Davidson and Chloe. Um, it's, it is tied up with identity politics. It's tied up with critical theory, which sees everything in these simplistic terms of the powerful and the powerless. And it's almost as if it's a ticket. It's a ticket to belong to the club, to be pro-Palestinian. And I know that in talking, to, I actually had an opportunity to try and talk to Marama. Um, just I saw her at a, you know, Waitangi um, weekend. So I went up and spoke to her and introduced myself and tried to talk about the conflict. And it was clear that she didn't want to engage in any arguments. So it's like people have, and I think Debbie is the same, they've, They've adopted the talking points and they're repeating their slogans over and over again. And if you can't, if somebody comes at you with something that they can't answer, then they just repeat another slogan. And, and so, you know, the, it, it's a complicated mix of things that has have got us to this point. It's it's happened in academia, and that's where it started, and it has infiltrated through um, through politics uh, through media. Of course, they all get educated um, in the universities and it started there and it's infiltrated. And I guess one of the things that's been shocking after October the 7th 
is the power of the social media campaign. TikTok, you know, young people are getting their Palestinian narrative through TikTok and Instagram, and it was boom, 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 right from the beginning. And I had parents ringing me saying, what is going on? My daughter's got this on her feed. What does it mean? What is decolonization? And so um, it's been a very um, well-orchestrated propaganda campaign that we've seen. Uh, so it is very concerning. And I guess one of my concerns for Māori, being Māori myself, I haven't mentioned that for your listeners, but I'm Te Arawa Māori, grew up in Rotorua, and um, is not only the kind of linking to this Palestinian narrative, but underneath it, just the way that the colonisation narrative can actually become a shackle for us as a people because it locks us into this mentality of, um, of grievance and of resentment and of anger and um, hopefully not violence, but that would be the next step for all of this um, angry feeling underneath it all. And, and I see it as a shackle. Um, yes, there are reasons to look at our history and to say, Wrong was done, and we need to face that. And I believe the country has, has at least we've got this process in the Waitangi Tribunal of dealing with grievances. But I don't think we as Māori should stay there in a place of grievance. I think we need to rise above that and just look at what we have. You know, we have so much in this country to be grateful for. We can do anything we want to do as Māori in this country. We don't have to be held back by anything. You know, if you want to be the Prime Minister, you can do that. You can go and study and train and do whatever you need to do to become a doctor or a lawyer. So that whole narrative kind of concerns me. Um, but the linking to the Palestinian narrative is even more concerning because with that comes the violence, you know, the, you, it's, it, there's a violence at its core. And part of that violence is the fact that if you look at um, what Hamas says, what Palestinian leaders say and what their actions show, is that no matter what offer is made to them, even if you give back land or you promise to give back, you know, one of the offers was 97% of the land, they don't actually want that. They want everything. They want all of the land. And part of that is the um, an Islamist kind of ideology that they see that as Muslim land and they won't be satisfied until they have complete control over that land. And um, history shows that Jews won't fare very well under that sort of control. And there would be no Jews. And there would be no Christians, there would be no Europeans, it would be a caliphate. Exactly, yeah. And um, it's so amazing. You will have contact with Jewish people here in New Zealand. If I was Jewish, I would be mortified. Mm -hmm. I would be scared. Yeah. I would actually be physically scared mm. because I am watching two small parties, admittedly, but adopting, using the platform of parliament to, to justify attacks on Jewish 
innocence. Legitimize those attacks as being provoked somehow. Mm. And that here I am Jewish and there will be nut bars in New Zealand mm-hmm. who will act on this stuff. This is highly inflammatory. Yeah, for sure. And a total minimization of the horror of it. And our legacy media have been totally complicit. For the most part, yeah, they've given very little attention to the Jewish side of the story, the Israeli side of the story, and and anti-Semitism has gone through the roof in, in New Zealand, uh, 1,500% increase I've seen a statistic that has been circulated, and there was a, a, you know, the Herald published something about it a couple of days ago. Uh, a Jewish friend of mine has shown me the photo of his son who got beaten up, it's, you know, the black eye. Um Kids, Jewish students are just having a horrendous time in their schools, you know, being called because their teachers won't like them, right? Well, I don't, I, I don't know. It's, it's from other students, you know, other yes. students are, are really um, harassing and discriminating and saying all kinds of terrible things to them. So it, it's pretty shocking, and I think how. Politicians need to be more responsible with their language. They seem to have no idea of the roll-on effect from the phrase from the river to the sea. You know, that is a call for genocide. And yes. sure, people will say, oh, no, it's this. But if Jewish people are telling you what that's what it is, if Israelis are saying that's what it is, if Hamas and Palestinian leaders are saying that's what it is, I think we should listen to them rather than our own kind of Western interpretation of what it yes, might be. The only one I I, I got was I, we interviewed John Minto, which was a lovely conversation, actually, and I was able to bite my tongue, and, and he did a, his best shot. But his idea of the river to the sea is just everyone li- li- living side by side in a liberal Western democracy with the rule of law and all having the vote. And I'm thinking, uh, that's not what these characters are saying. You know, that's not what this is not what they're saying. And every concession that's been given has sparked more violence. Mm-hmm. It doesn't lessen the violence. Um and the thing that I notice, Cherie, is that when you talk or attempt to talk with the likes of a Willie Jackson or a Debbie or a Chloe or a Marima, it's just as you say, there's not a reasoned discussion like you and I are having or what I and John Minter had, because he's old school lefty. They don't have an argument. They just have a position and a moral superiority for their position, which Mm. they repeat over and over and over again. And then the next thing is they get angry and ultimately they will get violent because they can't argue their point. They can't discuss it. They can't reason it. And so sitting bubbling beneath us is a very, very, troublesome thing for those of us who believe in the rights of the individual, Western democracy, um, all the things that the treaty was about and all the things that we sign up to as a society 
this is being systematically ripped from us, but happening at a fast clip. Mm. And and the Gaza-Israel war is a flashpoint for it. Yeah, it is. Well, anyone that's interested in what Cherie's got to say, you should go to Indigenous Coalition for Israel. I've spent a happy couple of hours reading the articles there. They're very, very interesting. I must say, I enjoyed reading Cherie's PhD, which is not something I ever thought I'd say, enjoy reading a PhD, but just I got through the first chapter and it was wonderful about this history of New Zealand and how we can sit here now and try to pretend to ourselves that, oh, this is a way over the other rest of the world, doesn't matter to us. Well, back in the 1920s, it mattered to us in a big way, it mattered to our Prime Minister. And when Mr. Goldstein came to New Zealand, it wasn't just the Jewish people that he was talking to, it was all New Zealanders, and it mattered to them. And interestingly, the Israeli ambassador, I didn't know this, has been welcomed onto the Marae up and down New Zealand. So this does concern us because of our history and all of this. I am talking to Dr. Cherie Trotter. I must admit, it sounded odd to me, Indigenous Coalition for Israel, but I imagine you're using, in a funny way, identity politics back onto those that play identity politics. Yeah, I felt, can... that, I, I felt that Māori and Indigenous people needed a platform to raise yes. our voice and to show the other side of the story. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that you must give pause to th- for thought. Mm-hmm. And you also show the Jewish people that Māori people aren't all of one voice on this that there are a lot of married people that... Uh, I think part of the history that's lost too is that there has been a long history of um, the strong connection between Māori and Jewish people. Oh, tell me about that quickly. Tell me about that quickly. I mean, Samuel Marsden, we can go back to Samuel Marsden, and he thought that there were so many similarities between Jews and Māori that um, he wrote up a list of them all, and he kind of started to promote this idea of Māori being one of the lost tribes of Israel. Uh, That was eventually debunked by scholars, but um, others also felt that. But I think also, you know, you see the the rise of the Māori prophetic movements in the 19th century, which were a form of resistance. But you had movements like Iharaira and Ringatū and um, even, you know, Paimāori Day and then later on Ratana, they all gained their inspiration from the Bible. Many of them saw themselves as Jews and saw themselves as Israelites. So, you know, there have been many um, different points throughout our history, um, even with the resurgence of Te Reo, for example, uh, one of the proponents of that, John Rangiho, went to Israel and he saw how Hebrew had been kind of resurrected from a language that wasn't used commonly and it's the everyday language of Israel. And he saw the, um, the basically Kohangareo, their full immersion classes over there. They're called Upan in Israel. He brought that idea home. Uh, and so there have been lots of 
examples like that. Um, the, the Māori Queen, for example, uh, she had an affection for Israel and welcomed um, Israeli ambassadors onto the Turanga Waiwai Marae uh, down there. So they've been again and again, you know, there's been this friendship towards the Jewish people and towards Israel. And it's really only been with the rise of a, a particular, I guess, political stream the last couple of decades that there's been this shift. Mm. And, of course, it's on the hard left. It's yeah. come from the hard left. It's come from the, the, the Soviet Union. When I was at university in the 70s, the Soviet Union was pumping money into activist groups that were pumping up Palestine. Uh, uh, the Palestinian people were a pawn for a proxy war with the US um, and for the Arab states. I mean, you got to feel sorry for them in so many ways because they have been led into a canyon where they're stuck. And um, when you look at the Maori leaders, I would suggest to you in our parliament, you don't get the sense they're speaking for Maori. Yeah, well, the stats don't show that either. No, the mana, the mana of true Maori leaders is much more respectful. And, um, but we will continue on the show, this discussion. Mm -hmm. uh, we are, feel, I feel so much more relatable. I always felt at, at a distance to Israel, and yet I felt so strongly for the Jewish people. Mm. And it's funny because it's in a Kiwi's DNA or cultural DNA. We go right. back. So That's I cool. feel... I feel better about it because I don't, I'm not big on the history or the biblical interpretations of, of what happened there, but I just feel for these people because they are genuinely Western civilized and respecting each other and living for life. And mm. then around them, they're surrounded by people that want to destroy them and kill them. I mean, it's just hard to imagine. Dr. Cherie Trotter. It's been wonderful. I'm sorry I took up so much of your time, and I so much of it was me musing, and sort of and um, bouncing off you because you are steeped in this and able to discuss it with us. And I found that very helpful. I hope our listeners did too. It's real talk with Rodney Hyde. You're on Rally Check Radio. Remember, send us a text twenty fifty seven. Email us at inbox at rallycheck.radio. Go to the Indigenous Coalition for Israel and sign up to the newsletter. What a wonderful thing. Thank you for tuning in to RCR Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, dislike what you're listening to, either way, we want to hear from you. Get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you. So connect with us today.